I'm stepping in and we're actually going to bring, this is the youth class that's part of the teaching today, so we're excited that the adults can join in and hear where we're at as far as going through Genesis. So we are, just as kind of some background here, the youth are going through Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and we're going through the creation story. Now, as you're probably well aware, these chapters, especially Genesis 1, chapter 2, are highly controversial by the world's standards, right? There's many attacks that are levied against these chapters. And it's no surprise because when you look at Genesis chapter 1, it establishes God as creator. He's the sovereign ruler. And as we're going through Romans, we see how important that is for understanding of his power and what our responsibility is and where we stand in the line of things. Our salvation is dependent on him. Now, an unbelieving world does not like the idea of God as a sovereign creator. So it is very important that we emphasize this as the foundation for the rest of Scripture. Who is God? And that's presented clearly here in these first chapters of Genesis. Okay, I'm looking for my youth, but you guys are all scattered out. Now, don't think you're getting it easy today because the adults are with you. You can still, what we usually like to do is when we start, I'm going to pray here in just a minute, but after we read the text, I have the students give me some basic observations, maybe even questions that they have on the text. And what I'm hoping with this is that as they're reading through the Word, is that they're asking questions of the text, that they're paying attention and seeing what kind of things do they need further explanation on. And I want them to have that kind of training as they dive into the Word. We, we want to take our time. We want to pull out the microscope and look in detail at these things so that we can grow. We can grow in God's Word. So I may still have them do that today, but you guys are going to have to speak out nice and loud today, though, okay? And you're not on the spot at all. All right, well, let's begin in prayer, and then we are going to dive in to Genesis chapter 9. Dear Father, we just thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here, to open up your word together. Lord, I pray that we would learn much from reading your word, uh, from examining it, from applying it to our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be mightily at work here in these things, not only in the, the lives of the young men and women, but also our senior saints. Whatever age range, Lord, we know that your word will always bear fruit by your spirit. And I pray that you would do it now today. Lord, I just lift up the Beck family and anyone else that is sick during the season. I pray that you'd bring them healing soon, that they'd be back with us worshiping together in person very shortly. Lord, we thank you for this time again. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, now I'm going to go through, it's always important to have a little context, and I've run through this exercise with the youth before, but I want to briefly go through eight chapters prior, and I want you guys just to give me the basic, the main idea of what is happening in that chapter. And I'm doing that because I want us to know where we are. It's a narrative, so it's important to know what's going before, of course, as we look to what's going after. So chapter one, anybody, this is not just open to the youth, but who can tell me what's the main idea of Genesis chapter one? What's happening in that chapter? Creation, very good. And that tells us much about God, as we've already talked about. Okay, what about chapter two? What's happening in chapter 2? The creation of man. Very good. Okay, this is where we see how God created man and women. Okay, what about chapter 3? What's significant about Genesis chapter 3? The fall of man. Very good, William. Yes, the fall of man. And that is very helpful 
and a sad event as we know, but this is, gives us understanding about what man's plight is. Why is salvation so important? Why is the work of Christ on our behalf for those who believe, why is that such an astounding thing? Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall. Okay, what about 4? What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Yeah, good. Cain and Abel, and we see the increasing prevalence of sin, right? And how sin and its distorting effects are throughout the world. It's continuing. What about chapter 5? This is a tricky one. Who can tell me what's the a, what's a main point of Genesis chapter 5? Sons of Adam, generations continue. We've talked about several things going there. We see that there's a limit to man's life as well. We can start seeing a, a pattern, right? His days are shortened over time. We're seeing the effects of sin. At the end of chapter 5, we come across a name. Who remembers that name? Very important going forward. Noah. Right? Very good. We're going to come across Noah. Okay, so chapter 6. Who can tell me what's going on in Genesis chapter 6? This is a rapid fire through the first eight chapters of Genesis. Very good. Yeah, mankind is increasingly corrupt. And then we have this bright light, if you will, amongst the overarching depravity of the world at this time. We have Noah, who was a righteous, a blameless Man, and we've discussed that with the youth. Blameless does not mean that Noah was without sin. Blameless refers to the aspect of his whole life, that there wasn't one part of Noah's life that you could pick and say, ah, you know, he has the secret hidden sin in this area. No, overall, he was a spiritually mature man. He was complete in that sense. By God's grace, we've talked about how we need to strive to be blameless, don't we? As Christians, we are called to be blameless. There isn't one hidden area that we're not giving to the Lord or that we're indulging in some secret sin. Okay, so yes, it's a, it's a sad picture so far in the history of the world. We're seeing increasing sin. What about chapter 7, William? The flood. Very good. And if you guys remember how we talked a little bit a week or so ago, it's a very chaotic picture of the flood. I mean, this is God's judgment meted out on the world in very descriptive terms here. And God uses nature so often as part of his judgment. And with the ocean and with the flood that encapsulated the whole world at this time, there is such a picture of raw power. You know, often in the Psalms, we, we see illustrations of God's power by water, the nature of water, man's inability to control that vast, massive quantity of water and the destructive power that it has. So it's a picture of God's judgment and most importantly, God's judgment on sin, right? God takes sin very seriously. Just read through the flood account and you can see that. Okay, what about chapter 8? This is the chapter before ours, guys. The water dries up. Yes, very good. We talked about Noah and the ark, letting the birds out with the coming of the dry land. Now, what happens at the very end, guys, of chapter 8, verses 20 through 22? Yes, we're going to get into that. In fact, that's uh, what our chapter is today. We're going to talk about the first covenant recorded here in the Bible, God's Noahic covenant. Okay, but yes, and then we see how Noah built an altar to Yahweh immediately after the flood. How we talked about how God has created man from the beginning to worship God, 
This is what man was created for. And after the devastating flood that wiped out all of humanity except for these eight, Noah and the rest of his family with him, their first response after this to the grace, to the mercy of God is to do what they were created to do, and that is to worship Yahweh. And in that very act, Noah is showing his dependence on God, his submission to him, and also an act of praise at that time. So it's a pretty incredible picture there, there at the end of chapter 8. Okay, and now we come to chapter 9. Now, these preceding chapters, especially 7 and 8, we've seen so much about God's judgment. And just as a reminder, guys, and this is for everyone, well, let me ask it this way. What, what's the importance? Why, why should we as believers reflect on God's wrath and God's judgment on sin? What's the value? What's the purpose in that? Very good. Magnifies His grace and mercy. I like that. That's very good. Yeah, there are, there are so many reasons why we reflect on God's judgment, and I like that. When we hear in chapter 9, we're going to see a lot of God's grace and His mercy. And, and that's not saying we haven't seen it throughout Genesis, but here there's such a beautiful picture of that. And when we think about grace and mercy, how do we best understand what it, how do we appreciate it as believers? It's always when it's against a backdrop of judgment, Right, Just like I think Lawson uses the illustration as, of Christ as that shining, multifaceted diamond against that black backdrop of sin. Right? How do we value Christ and what He has done for us as believers is when we understand more perfectly what sin is and how our sin is against an infinite, eternal, and holy God. So, yes, there's great value. This evolves practically into our own lives too, doesn't it? When we think on God's judgment and His wrath towards sin, our own hatred of sin should grow as well. This should have a practical result in our walk with the Lord, our sanctification. We have to think of sin rightly. There's a, a Puritan book, I'm sure Michael has talked about it, called The Sinfulness of Sin, but it, it carries that idea. There is great value in thinking on sin as it points us to thinking on Christ, right? That we may think of Him more accurately. So we're going to be spending time in that today. So let's go ahead, and I like to read the text first. We're going to go through verses 1 through 17. We're not doing all of chapter 9 today. And usually what I do is I have the youth take about a verse or two and read, and uh, you guys can be on display today. How about we do that? We're going to stick with the youth, and I'm going to give you guys practice on reading really loudly so the rest of the adults can hear you. You guys ready for that? Okay, now you're all scattered about, so I'm going to find you and kind of pick here. But we've got 17 verses. So Ben, how about you do, uh, Ben, you do 1 through 3. Kalen, you're going to do 5 through 7. AJ, Let's have you do 8 through 10. William, 11 through 13. Oh, are you trying to hide there, Hayden? I can see it. Uh, Hayden, how about you do verses 14 and 15? Okay, and where's one more? One of my youths here. Let's see. Are we missing somebody? Aha, there they Oh, you guys got it tough. You guys got to really belt it out because you're at the back of the room. How about... Jackson, we'll put you on the spot today, Mr. Man. Jackson, let's do, you do 16 and 17, okay? And then let's go ahead and we'll start with Ben. Let's read God's Word together. Thank you, guys. Well done. Okay, I could hear you, so I'd imagine the rest of the adults could too. 
Very good. Okay, chapter 9, 1 through 17. So that very first verse, you know, I like to look at this section and talk about God's blessing, a recommission, if you will, and His covenant, His covenant with His people or the Noahic covenant. So verse 1, does this look similar as far as this wording? God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis, have we seen that kind of wording before? Yeah, we have, haven't we? That's the commission God gave Adam and Eve, right? The creation there in 1 verses 1, 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So this was God's good purpose, God's will for man for creation was to demonstrate his likeness, not only in man's abilities, man's rational thought, man's leadership in that way, but also in his dominion over the earth. We've used that example before, and I know some of you guys know that, but if you think about ancient kings back in the day, any time a, a king would conquer a new territory or land, often they would construct a statue in their likeness, and this would be a sign that they own this, this land belonged to them. Now, that's just an analogy, but it is interesting to me how man and women are created in the image of God. We are His image bearers, and this was our role. This is our role to enact dominion over the earth. Now, we've already seen from chapter 3 that because of the fall, these plans have changed, haven't they? This initial commission was in the garden where there was not the presence of sin, so things look differently. God gave an, an incredible promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15, looking towards the Messiah of the future after the fall when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Adam and Eve are looking towards this promise. Who is the Savior that will restore that right relationship with God, that it's been broken and tainted by man's sin? And in the succeeding generations, Noah himself throughout would be looking towards this promise. Now, we might get kind of nervous with the judgment of the preceding chapters, right? The earth is almost entirely obliterated of life, but yet God preserves his people and his remnant. He preserves that line through Noah. And as we're going to see later in chapter 9, Noah is not a perfect man. But yet God will keep his promise to the end, even if it's just a few people that he keeps at that time because of sin. So we have this recommission. God bless Noah. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, that idea of God blessing Noah shows that God is enabling Noah and his sons to fulfill what he has commanded them to do. He's told them to be fruitful and to multiply. And this is contingent. This is entirely dependent on God's blessing. And in fact, throughout Genesis, we don't have time to look at that, but there's a strong theme of God blessing his people, blessing them, enabling them to do the work that he has called them to do. So we have a recommission, and they are called after this devastating flood to, to fill, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, and in verse 2, have you guys read that? What is that saying in there? Let me, let me point this to some of the youth, because I didn't ask you for your observations on the text yet. 
But what does this mean? And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth. Any thoughts there, guys, on that? What does that mean? Yeah, that's very good. Yes, excellent. Prior to sin, what was the relationship between man and animals like? We know that animals weren't killed, right? There wasn't that same aspect. So man does have dominion. So dominion looks a bit differently now with the presence of sin. So God has given his commandment there in verse 1, but he's also providing, there's provision from God. And part of this is the relationship man has with animals. So you're absolutely right, Chloe. Man does have dominion over the animals. There is a natural fear that animals have to man, and into man's hand they are given. God has given them into his hand. Now it says in verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you as with the green plant. So what did man eat, guys, prior to the fall? Yeah, vegetarians. Yeah, very good. First vegetarians. Vegetarians, they didn't eat, they didn't eat meat. So now God is providing meat as well for man. Okay, and, and some have looked at this, and we've talked about clean versus unclean. Here in this verse, um, we're not seeing clean versus unclean. It doesn't differentiate, and eh, we're not going to go extensively into that. We know from later books of the Bible that there is that difference, the command that God has given versus clean and unclean. But the key idea is that God is providing animals, animals for man to eat. But now he does give a negative injunction. There is a, a command that he tells them regarding life in verse 4 and 6. He says, however, flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. So man is, can eat the animals, but he's not to eat the blood. What does that mean, guys, that man is not to eat the blood? Can man not eat blood, period? If there's a little bit of blood mixed in with a, a stew, can man not eat that? You think that's what it's stating? No? That's good. I'm sure there's an aspect of that too, Ernest. Yeah. You know, I, I, when you look at this, and if you keep in mind the context that the flood has just happened, I think there really is an emphasis on God's value of life. God's created life, and God values it. And man is to not take a crass view towards life, a sin naturally distorts. And in the previous chapter, we've seen the amount of murder and death and killing that's already happened. If you remember Lamech in chapter 5 and his kind of his taunting song about how he has murdered more men than others, right? This is the natural path that the world takes in sin. But God highly values life. And yes, that's absolutely true. There is element of, of raw. I mean, some commentators say, okay, they can't eat it if the blood is pulsing through the veins. So others will go as far as to say the blood in and of itself. I mean, I think it's helpful if we look at Leviticus 17, 10 through 11. And let's have someone read Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11, nice and loudly. Thank you. So God obviously, there in Leviticus views that very strongly. And this, again, goes down to right worship of who the Lord is, but also his value on life. That's not to say that man cannot eat animals, as we've already discussed, but the blood, in that way, the lifeblood, is uh, something that he is prohibiting. And again, when talking about how God creates life and sustains it, Psalm 9, verse 12, that's going to be our, our next verse there that we're looking at. 
So verse 5, he says, Surely I will require your life blood. From every living thing, I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, who can tell me, based on your reading, I know the youth, you guys have read this chapter already, but what is the main idea there? What is, what is God saying in that verse? Punishment? Yeah, that's good. There's certainly act of punishment there, of reckoning. We'll talk about that. That's good. Yeah, I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing, I will require it. So God has created life, and as such, he keeps an account of it. And this is where Psalm 9, verse 12 came in. So let's turn there now. Can someone go to Psalm 9 and read verse 12 for me? Very good. Thanks, Ben. So for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So when we're talking about requiring, yeah, just like you mentioned, Tom, there, there is a level of, of punishment. There's a reckoning that will happen if blood is unlawfully or sinfully spilt. From every living thing I require, and from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, this use of the word brother, we can see that in Genesis chapter 4 when he's talking about Cain and Abel. That's where we first see that the word brother there and used in that idea. When he says, where is Abel your brother in verse 9? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's a heinous sin to murder to kill. And what makes it all the more terrible and dreadful is that man is created in the image of whom? Image of God, right? Man is created in God's image. So for man to shed the blood of another man in this context of a brother, of a fellow man, a fellow human being, is an atrocity. It's one that is repugnant to God and will be punished. Now, when some look at this verse, they may say this is where capital punishment started, right? This is where the government institution or that idea of death for murder. I think biblically, you can certainly make that case. I wouldn't go so far to say that there's an institution that started in the text, uh, but we can draw that necessary conclusion that man is to be held in account for murder, for spilling the life of other men because... They are created in the image of God. Now, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So it's a serious thing to kill and to murder. And what does Jesus say about hate in the Gospels? Any of my youth, you guys remember that? If a, a brother hates someone else in their heart, is that just a, a no biggie? It's akin to murder. Yeah. God takes murder very seriously. So for Jesus to say that even hatred in the heart is akin to murder, man, that should get our attention fast, shouldn't it? Okay, 9, 1 through 7. So again, he's blessing. He has this negative injunction. He's showing the importance and the value, reminding man, sinful man, of the value of life. And he gives that... And he talks about the reckoning and the requiring. And then in verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Be fruitful and multiply. Now that text in and of itself wouldn't be 
very popular amongst folks that are fearful about overpopulation, huh? You know, we hear a lot about that. Ideas of, of the modern age that the, the world is running. We have far too many people. Our cities are too full. We need to find ways to limit the expansion of people. I know we're pretty familiar with China in that regard. You can ask him, have you ever been to West Texas? Now, this is God's command, his mandate for man, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'm not saying in this verse there is a, a set amount of children that God is telling folks to have. That's not the point, even though some may take that legalistically in that sense. No, he's saying that life, life is a gift from God, and man was created to be fruitful, to multiply. Part of his dominion, part of being made in the image of God is that we are able to bring life into the world by God's blessing. So this is the commandment for Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And Noah obviously obeyed, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Okay, that's verses 1 through 7. So we have the blessing. Now, in verse 8, there's a shift of narrative, if you will. When we have that, the word then, we can often see a shift in the narrative or a change of thought or idea. And it says, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Now, the first thing you'll notice throughout these verses, guys, through 9 and all the way to 17, there's a lot of repetition. Anybody wonder why there's so much repetition when God is talking about this covenant with man? Any ideas on that? To make it clear. Yeah, that's good, to make it clear. There's a great quote that I had to write down. I'm, I'm a little bit nerdy when it comes to commentators, even the dry language sometimes, so bear with me. But I thought this was gold. They say, the statements in verses 8 through 17 are highly repetitive and monotonous to Western ears. And for you guys, monotonous just means slow, dull, steady. You've heard that word monotone? My youth there? I know the adults have. This is not a test for the adults, but you guys have heard monotone, right? It's maybe boring. We don't understand. It's like if I went on the piano and played the same key again and again. It's monotonous to Western ears, but this repetition is like a cathedral bell pealing and ringing out again and again, reverberating into the future that God is committing himself to all his living creatures while the earth lasts. There can be no mistaking of the parties specified in the covenant. So there's a purpose of repetition. And we've talked about that when the youth read through the text. When there is repetition and when they see that, take note. There's a reason God in his word may repeat certain phrases or what we may consider say the same thing in a slightly different way. We should take note of it. So this is the covenant. Now it says, God says, as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Who's initiating this covenant? Is this a, a dual party? Is man on one side saying, I'm going to keep my half of the bargain, God, if you uphold your side of things? Is that what we see here in this, this chapter? No, definitely not. Who's initiating it, William? Yeah, it's all God. And it's so clear in the repetition that it's all the Lord. Now, what's this idea of a covenant? That's not language that we use nowadays. What, who can tell me, what does it mean to make a covenant with someone? Unless some of you all have made covenants with one another, I don't know. A promise. Good. Yeah, we, we have promise. And we have, well, if we just think about our members' covenant, right? 
So a covenant, I like that there's, a, there's an agreement, there's a promise that is made. But of course, like in the example of a homeowner's covenant, there's multiple parties involved, aren't there? And ultimately, when you think about a covenant, the covenant is really only as sure, as steadfast, or as good as the, the parties making that covenant. You know, your confidence in that homeowner's association is as good as, as whatever that business is, is the corporation. If you feel like that is a steady, well-managed business, well, then you will have some confidence that they're going to hold their end of the bargain. But every human institution, every person is flawed, is faint, or is fatedly smeared by sin. We're tainted by sin. So ultimately, we cannot have lasting steadfastness or faithfulness. Our covenant with one another is, is limited in that sense by our sin, which is why it's so important that God is the one initiating this covenant, and it's coming from God, because God is perfect and holy. God is the creator. In Genesis 1, when God created man, he didn't have to enter into a, a personal relational covenant with his creation. I mean, it's astounding to think about that who God is and His mercy and grace to man. This is the Creator. This is the one that enacts a worldwide flood, which all the liberal scholars and scientists just can't get our heads wrapped around that. How can that be? How can God do that? Well, if you don't view God rightly, of course you're going to negate everything that's said in Genesis. But this is the Creator. This is God. So we can trust in that covenant. And Noah trust in that covenant. What a joy that would be to receive that out of that time. Now, God makes this covenant. He's already established with his negative injunction. We see his value of life, and we can see how, like some of you guys have said it, how much detail there is in this. He says, I established my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. This extends not just to man, but to the earth, to every living creature that no longer will they be wiped out in that same kind of devastating ruin as the flood. They will not be destroyed by water in that same way. God again repeats, indeed, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Is God saying there in verse 11 that the world will never be destroyed again? No, that's important to note that, isn't it? There's an important qualifier there, isn't it? Again, to be cut off by the water of the flood. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that, that uh, the world will be destroyed well, we can look at just a couple verses. God will destroy the world with fire one day. Can someone turn to 2 Peter 3 and read verses 10 and 11? And would someone else read Revelation 20, verse 9? Thanks, Bobby. And then Revelation 20, I say verse 9? Yeah. So we know an ultimate judgment is coming. You know, we should, when we read Genesis 7, 8, even 6, and noting the, the sinfulness of man and God's righteous judgment. We should tremble at that. This should instill in believers a healthy sense of the fear of the Lord. 
right? That God is righteous and His judgment on sin is exacting, it's complete, and it's devastating because of what sin is. Again, to understand and appreciate that, you have to have a right knowledge of just what sin is. God is a holy God and He will punish sin and He has to. There's a a great line that I was going to share with the youth, but if we are indifferent to sin, indifference to evil and sin in the world is a very evil thing. God is not an indifferent God. He cannot be. He cannot be indifferent to the sin that's taking place in the world. Though we have this everlasting promise of the covenant, the world will not be destroyed in the same way by the flood of water. Man and all his sinfulness will be judged for eternity One day, when that time comes and the world will be destroyed by fire. And ultimately, this brings glory to God, but we should even rejoice in that because God is perfect and holy. So God's judgment, we take it seriously. And again, like we've talked about, the reason we think on judgment is it makes all that mercy and the good news of the gospel so much sweeter, doesn't it? Good news is only good news when it comes to us amidst bad. If we're complacent and satisfied with where we are, Good news will do little for us because we think we have all the good now. It's when we realize just how bad it is spiritually, we realize the gospel. Ah, this is why this is indeed good news. Okay, we're moving right along. Verse 12, God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. It's a sign of the covenant. When you think about signs of the covenant, some of you may think of circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a symbolic emblem that God uses. And it really, again, is by grace. God doesn't need a reminder for him to fulfill his side of the covenant or his covenant with us. But it's ultimately for our benefit as well, for our remembrance to know who God is and that he indeed keeps his promises. Verse 13, I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. What is this bow he's talking about? Rainbow? Yeah, the rainbow. And you, you've seen a rainbow before, right? Everybody's seen a rainbow? Good. Most of us are pretty familiar with the story of Noah and the ark and the rainbow, right? But I wonder when we see that rainbow, do we think of it in the way that we need to? Do we give God enough praise and glory for His everlasting covenant, His protection, His promise to His people when we see that? Again, another great quote, and I better read it now because I'm running out of battery here. But speaking of the rainbow that we see on the cloudy days and the cloudy sky, and, and how do we as believers when we see that, what might we, what attitude or aspect of praise might we adopt when we see that? says, they accepted it as a sign that God has no pleasure in destruction, that he does not give way to moods, that he does not always chide, that if weeping may endure for a night, joy is sure to follow. If anyone is under a cloud leading a joyless, heartless life, if anyone has much apparent reason to suppose that God has given him up to catastrophe, And lets things run as they may. There is some satisfaction in reading this natural emblem and recognizing that without the cloud, 
Nay, without the cloud breaking into heavy sweeping rains, there cannot be the bow, and that no cloud of God sending its permanent but will one day give place to unclouded joy. Now, I know as adults, we've surely all of us have felt in some way that we might have been given up to catastrophe. Some of us know the feeling of a, a joyless, perhaps, or a heartless life. Perhaps we've going through many difficulties and trials. I was going to ask the youth that if they know that. You guys are still young yet. But ultimately, you've had your share of trials and temptations. If you're in your teenage years, you, you know well what it means to be tempted. But I pray you know well what it means to, to look to Christ and His promises to us. And when we see that bow in the sky, we're reminded of God's faithfulness. God makes promises that He keeps, that His promises to us are as sure and as steady as eternity, and that His judgment against sin is just and powerful, but yet He will always preserve His people. You know, that's a, quite a thought to think the next time we have a rainy day, right? And I pray that that is something we can adopt and think of. Now, it is sad, and I know all of us know that that sign of the rainbow has been adopted by the homosexual community, which is a very sad thing and is pretty frightening when you think about God's judgment. But doesn't that, again, just point to God's incredible mercy? Sin of man is what leads to judgment. And when sinful man, in his sin, uses God's covenant sign that he will forbear until the last day. He will not judge man in that same way again until the day of fire. They can hold that up into God's face and so provoke, but yet God will always keep his promise. We can't say the same for us, can we? I know the youth, you guys aren't parents. Someday, Lord willing, you will be. But even as mothers or fathers, there's only so much provoking that we can take from a sinful child before we may lose our patience before we may act with sin, right? But yet God is not that. God holds to his covenant forever. And what an incredible thing it is to think about that. Okay, 14, it will be, when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. God says, I will remember my covenant. Now, uh, high schoolers, we've talked about that a little bit in the preceding chapters. When God says, I will remember, is he saying that he has a memory problem, some cognitive decline? No. We need reminders all the time, don't we? We, we see that same word in chapter 8, the very beginning. God says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. It wasn't like God was on vacation. He said, oh, wait a second, Noah, he's on the earth in the flood. Oh, I'm supposed to do something about that. No, this idea of God remembering is more about taking action. He will act on part of his people. He will be faithful always to the promises that he has kept. There's an active sense here that he is remembering. So when God sees the bow in the cloud, he remembers. That very bow is a sign of his act that he will keep his promises, his covenant with his people. So he's not like us. He doesn't forget things like we do. They often call them anthropomorphisms, right? Where we know God is spirit. When it talks about God's mighty arm or his hand, it's helping us as frail, finite 
creatures, right? In our understanding, we can know more of who God is by Him stooping to us, even in language. He uses, He's so graceful to us that He uses our language to help us understand. So the bow will be in the cloud and I will look upon it, verse 16, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So again, note that repetition. But it's not monotonous. I I do like that quote. It's like a ringing peal of God's mercy. His mercy to us. Now we talk a lot about grace and mercy. And who can tell me? Because often we interchange these. And I want the youth especially too to understand. When I say grace and mercy, what's the difference there? What's the difference between grace and mercy? And it's pretty subtle. It can be tricky. You guys know what the difference is between grace and mercy? We often use them interchangeably, don't we? So it's helpful to differentiate. I like to think of it, this is very basic, but if you're, when you think about grace, think of giving, bestowing. So grace would be God giving to the sinner what they do not deserve, right? So when God preserves Noah and his family from judgment, that is his incredible grace because he's giving them life when all they deserve for their sin is just judgment. So there's a giving aspect. Mercy I like this. Mercy is God not giving to the sinner what they do deserve. Flip it on its head. That's like a a different side of the coin. So mercy, well, he shows his mercy again to Noah, right? Because the flood is what they did not, what they did deserve, but he withheld the flood from them even though they deserved that. So think on the difference between grace and mercy and how we see both sides of those here in this chapter on on chapter 9. Okay, now I've been chatting a lot, guys, and I know when we're up there, usually we have some more time for questions. But any questions on the text or any observations that you all found helpful? Youth, I know you've read the chapter. And he couldn't use water again, right? Why, could not, why wouldn't God use water again? Exactly. And he's going to keep his promise. That's very good. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's, and I've read, there's two sides to that as far as the commentator. Some will say when we see bow, you're right. You know, we think of rainbow, but some have suggested there's also the sign of, you're right, a a bow of war. And some will go so far as to say that when the bow is pulled back, the rain is the arrows, right, of judgment. I, I think that's fine. You could take it that way too. I know some will say that is going a little above beyond what the text is saying. At that, we don't need to draw that conclusion, but I think that's, that's a helpful description. They would say when we see the bow in the sky, that's like the mighty bow of war at rest, right? It's not drawn, ready to, to let loose on the world as far as judgment. But that's a good observation. I like the imagery there of that as well. So what, I'm going to end it with this way. So we've just gone through, we've gone through 1 through 17 briefly. How does that help us? What does that do for us right now in our Christian walk? When we're studying Noah and the flood and this covenant, the Noahic covenant, what should that, how should that help you be more like Jesus this week? Yeah, I love how you bring that up because we're not, we don't have time to go into it today and that'll be next week, but is Noah, you know, in some sense we think this is a, a second chance for mankind, right? It's a recommission of the mandate, but what happens with Noah Immediately after, he sins, right? 
there's a clear sign. Going back from Genesis chapter 3, there's the, this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? Sin has its effect. And, and lest we think, oh, it's all good now. Noah is a blameless, righteous man. Surely this is how peace will be found through man's efforts. doesn't work that way, does not Yeah, so I like that. Yeah, how sad that the sign of the covenant of God's mercy and grace to, to us is a sign or attempted sign of re open rebellion. Yep, and indeed, that's, that's not the purpose of the rainbow. Yeah, the more we learn about who God is and just His grace towards us, His mercy towards His creation, yeah, that should, that absolutely should change our view towards sin increasingly. We should view it rightly in that respect. I'm right at 10. I don't want to go too much late because then uh, y'all will tell on me with Michael next week. Yes, sir. Still in effect? Yeah. No, I mean, no, because when you look at the, the laws of Leviticus, yeah, but it's before. Yeah, that's a really good question. L, you put, the, you put me on the spot. I would say no to that degree. You know, obviously there, there are things that transcend that. When it's talking about men, of course, we have the concept of murder. Yeah, there. <laughs> thanks, Wendy. Yeah, why would you want to anyway? Now, that's a good question. You know, I know with the New Covenant, we've obviously, there's freedom in Christ. There's liberty in Christ, right? So, I, in fact, I don't know, are there dishes from any cultures that use blood? Now, I, I would say with uh, the New Covenant there that we have a freedom in that aspect. Now, I think, you know, in the context here, if someone is interested on, there have been some pretty horrific cultures, we won't go into detail about eating something alive, Okay, there, there's definitely a sin issue there because that pervades into so many things. Proverbs 12.10 talks about the righteous man cares for the life of his beast. As we have dominion over the earth, we're called to care for the animals in that way. So we have freedom. So I'm not going to say that this says we can't eat blood or have blood in soup because we have freedom in Christ after the new covenant, of course. But there is, there is a limit there to how far you're going to go, right? And I think it transcends into other things too. Yes, now that, if I'm understanding the context correctly, was referring to the practices of idol, uh, idol worship at the time in the temples. So there was a correlation between the idolatry and idol worship and the practices there at the idols, and the Christians were not to have any part of that. So strangled blood, those kind of practices, which should be entirely foreign to Christian practice at that time. So it was related to that. Okay, it's 10.04, guys. Any other questions? Okay. All right, let's, let's close in prayer, and I hope just a brief survey of the half of Genesis chapter 9. Give you info for today, but might wet your whistle if you haven't picked up Genesis in some time. I pray that you'd open it again, dive into God's Word. It is a fascinating book, but it tells us so much about who God is and His plan for all of creation. I mean, Genesis is directly applicable to where we are right now, of course right? Like all of God's words. So pick it up, read it, study it. You're not going to regret it. Okay, that's my pitch. All right, let's go ahead and let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your truth, for your steadfastness, that Lord, you are faithful, that you're faithful to judge sin. Uh, we are grateful that you are a holy God, that you will not be indifferent to sin, but that you must punish it and that is love, and that you've given us Christ who took the wrath we deserved upon himself and you suffered in our place, that the righteous wrath of God would be satisfied for our stead. What an incredible truth that is. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help us think on these things. Perhaps if it's a rainy day here this week, if we see that rainbow in the sky, may we be reminded of your everlasting covenant, of your covenant to Noah, to the earth even, that you would preserve and protect until that final day of judgment when all things will be made right. We look forward to that day. I pray that you'd help us think on that rightly this morning. And in your name we pray, amen.